Good morning, Four Oaks. Thanks to, to Peter and Carla. And all in favor of Peter reading every week, say aye. Aye. Okay, good. There, there was much enthusiasm for that. Thanks for being here at Four Oaks. I'm, I'm Paul Gilbert, the lead pastor. Um, obviously, we are in the Advent season, and Advent just literally means, in Latin, coming or appearance. And so you'll hear us singing songs about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago, but our longing for his appearance, we hope and pray very, very shortly, but he know that, that he will come even if he now tarries. And, and there's three ways, I, I kind of thought about this this week, there's three ways that we here at Four Oaks at least, celebrate Advent, put an accent on Advent, so to speak. And I, of course, alliterated it. There's, there's three G's, and this is a good, easy way to remember what we do here during this season. One, we gather, and not just here on Sunday morning, but we gather for special occasions, like tonight for Four Oaks um, Family Christmas. It's a, it's, a, it's a night of celebration, of feasting, of, of, of joyful hearts. And that's part of what we do during Advent as we... As we remember and think about the fact that we who were once in darkness are, have now seen a great light. We, we also gather in special occasions like Christmas Eve. So this year we'll, we'll be gathering at 5 p.m. here on Christmas Eve as one church family. There is no child care. We do that on purpose so that we can pack it in. We make it so much fun, parents, with the fire that we pass around. You can bring your little flashlights if you want, if you feel a little safer, safer with that. But one, so we gather. That's part of what we do here, um, especially during the Advent season. Number two, we give. And so you might have noted, if you're a regular here, you received a letter from me that sort of updated um, the church family on um, where we are with our generosity and giving for um, this calendar year, this fiscal year. And it was an opportunity for me to, to call us to remember... Um, Four Oaks, as we excel in the grace of giving. And if you, and if you didn't receive that letter, you can grab one um, at the uh, Connect desk on the way out. We also sent a video clip of that update I did on a Sunday morning. We sent that out in the Four Oaks Weekly. And I'll be doing another one here in the next, next week or two. And it's just a reminder, and, and remember this past Tuesday, of course, there's Cyber Monday, then there's Giving Tuesday. And, and there's so many great causes and ministries to give to, I commend them to you to be generous to them. But it's also a reminder for us in this season to remember that the local church is the center of God's redemptive work. And because the, the local church is the, the locus and focus of our, give, of, our, of our spiritual lives, it should be the locus and focus of our giving as well. And so encourage you to consider that this season. So we gather, we give, and I had to think a, a long time about this one, but th- three, we gaze. We gaze. If you've ever, um, ladies, you look down on, your, on, your, on one of your fingers and there's some sort of precious stone or gem or diamond. Maybe it's a wedding band or a special something from your, from your grandmother. And it's with you all the time, right? And so you'll glance down. It's, you're so used to it, you don't even always think about it intuitively, but it goes with you where you are in a lot of ways, that's, that's what the gospel is like in the life of the local church. It's always there. We always teach it. We always proclaim it. However, there are some times, just like with the diamond ring, you want to stop and gaze, don't you? 
and just think about what, what, what is represented in there. That, that diamond, the, the clarity, the precision, the, the beauty, the majesty. And that's what we do during Advent season when it comes to Jesus Christ. We want to stop and pause and sort of gaze at him. We want to look at him as if he is a diamond from all facets and all angles and just pause. Pause. I really encourage this Four Oaks family this season to pause in this Advent season and to soak in Jesus. And so for these next four weeks or so, we have a, a special sermon series as we, as we hit pause on Genesis. We'll return after the new year that we are calling Jesus the Son. And we're going to look at five aspects of the sonship of Jesus, that Jesus is the son of Adam, that he's the son of Abraham, that he's the son of Mary, he's the son of David, and ultimately, of course, he is the son of God. And we're going to look at all of those in turn, beginning with the son of Adam. So there's two points for us this morning, two points, pretty straightforward. Here we go. Number one, the first Adam fails. And number two, Jesus, the second Adam, saves. And I want us to, to, to focus on that. I want us to think about that. I want us to, to, to wade into those waters and gaze. And I, I think as we do, Jesus will encourage you this Advent season. So the first Adam fails. Look at verse 12. Paul says it right off the top. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Now, remember, Paul is taking us all the way back to Genesis. A number of months ago when we were in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we've heard this story. It should be familiar to most of us that that God had given Adam the garden to tend and care and a marriage and a wife to love and to cherish. But yet through Adam's leadership and, and not listening to God and instead disobeying him, going his own way, plunged all of humanity from henceforth into sin and misery. Paul's is taking us back to Genesis 3 to give us an explanation for why you and I live in a sinful, broken world. And the fact that we are predisposed to rebellion. Parents, we all understand this. Our parents understood it about us. We didn't have to have special lessons growing up with our kids about how to be bad, right? Our parents didn't have to do that for either. Lesson number one, son, don't listen to what I say, which is a paradox, but that's, a, that's not even in the sermon notes. You get what I'm saying, right? We are predisposed to this, and Paul reminds us, he traces this back all the way to Adam. And in verse 18, he succinctly says it this way. He says, one act led to the condemnation of all men. Adam, if you will, was kind of like an elected member of Congress, right, from his district. He goes to D.C. with big promises in his pocket and some money. He, he, he makes particular proclamations and promises to give out favors and, and goes to achieve a certain political agenda that you've elected him to do, but then he goes to D.C., and what does he do? He completely votes the opposite, right? Or even worse, 
he plunges himself into scandal and corruption and has to be removed from office. And you as a district no longer have representation. You're, you know, it's the worst of all worlds. And in a way, that's what Adam did on our behalf. Now, many of you will say this morning, particularly if you're paying attention, you might be quick to say, and certainly our world would be quick to say, that's crazy, taught Pastor Paul. I didn't vote for Adam. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you mean? I, I didn't get a say in that. How am I responsible for the situation that I find myself into? And there, there's three little subpoints here I want to talk about, about this arrangement of, of headship that Adam was our head and, and how this relates to representative leadership. Okay, so th- three subpoints. Here we go. Number one, representative leadership or headship is a part of God's design for all relationships. It's embedded into the fabric of every relationship on planet Earth in every institution. FSU is getting ready to have a press conference at high noon today, which is why we have so many people in the first service, clearly. (laughs) Because there's a sense of which we need a coach who's going to what? Lead us and act on our behalf. This is the way it works for husbands and marriages or parents with children or, or, or a child who wakes up to a family inheritance. He didn't earn it on his own he, or her own. It's been bequeathed, given to them. This is how it works for leadership in churches. Elders in churches act on behalf of the people. And you know what? Representative leadership is what we, the reason it's embedded in every institution, listen, is because it's embedded in the very being and fabric of the Godhead. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that, that God, is the, God the Father is the head of Christ. And that the, that the Son, here in Advent season, we remember this, was sent to the earth to act on behalf of the Godhead. Remember, he, Jesus, we studied this in John. I came not to do my will, but the will of him who, what, sent me. So the reason this idea of representative leadership is embedded in all of our relationships is because it's embedded in the gospel and in the Godhead itself. By the way, side note, this is why leadership is so important. This is also why leadership is so dangerous. Husbands, you have the power to dramatically and disastrously change the course of your marriage in just a few dumb decisions, don't you? Parents, we have the capacity to, in an earthly human sense, alter literally the course of our children's lives. We see it with presidents, we see it with congressmen and women, we see it in the homes, we see it in the workplace, we see it on the sports field. Representative leadership is embedded in every institution. So number one, mark that. Number two, representative leadership or headship, and this is really hard for us to wrap our minds around, but we have to, doesn't mean you aren't responsible for your own actions. Okay, let's, let's go back to the text for a second, where Paul reminds us, yes, that we are a sinner by nature. It's inherited, but listen... You were also a sinner by choice. Look at verse 12. It said, death spread to all men because what? All sinned. You see, you may have inherited a nature, but nobody 
Nobody made you do what you do. Nobody makes me do what I do. All of us sin of our own free volition and choice. Now, this is not to say that other people's sin does does not dramatically impact us. We know that it does. It happens on the micro level with abuse and, and being terribly treated and injustice. It happens on the micro level. It obviously happens on the macro level, whether it's slavery, slavery or racism. However, particularly in an age where we are want to equip to identify ourselves by the aggressions that have been committed against us. And please understand something. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We need to fight abuse and injustice wherever we see it. Wherever we see it. Because of the gospel, because of the grace of God. However, when we look at our primary identity as one who has been aggrieved and one who is hurt... It's easy to lose sight of personal choice, personal responsibility. James reminds us of this in James chapter 1. Listen to this. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now this is pertinent, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Whether it's the devil made me do it, or my parents made me do it, or my boss made me do it, all of us are prone, just like Adam, right? Just like Adam in that garden. Adam, where did you get that fruit? Again, you've heard me say this before. Why did God front Adam? Why, why did God approach Adam when Eve was the one clearly with the apple in her hand? Because he's responsible. Because it was his headship. No one made him do it. So representative leadership doesn't mean you're, you aren't responsible for your own actions. All of us are here sinners by nature, but also sinners by choice. And here's the third point. If you don't get the idea of representative leadership or headship, you're going to miss what Paul says here is the heart of the gospel. See, Paul says, if, here's, here's the rationale. If by one man's sin could plummet all of mankind into ruin, I mean, that was the power of Adam's representation, what we call his federal headship. That's where we get the idea of federal government. Someone is acting on our behalf. If, 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 if Adam was such a representative who could go and by his actions impact us all, then don't you see it's going to take a very unique man, is it not? It's going to take a very unique representative to lift us out of the situation that we are in. That's why Luther says, we're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You see, without this idea of representation, you were lost and I'm lost. Because what you need 
even if you don't know this is what you need and what I need is that we need a better representative. We need a better head. We need someone who can not just be successful where Adam wasn't successful, but also, now listen to this, undo what Adam has done. And that's the whole point that Paul is making in this passage. Because ultimately he says the most important thing to know is not, is not to, to get into a theological quibble about why we are here. Do you have a better explanation, Paul might say? It doesn't change. We're all ruined. We all need desperate help and saving, which is why Paul brings us to this second point. While Adam failed and brought us ruin, he failed, Jesus, the second Adam, saves. Okay, look back. Look to verse 14 for a second. It says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now that word type, he's saying Adam was a type of Christ, the one who was to come, that is Jesus. A type literally means a form or a pattern or a resemblance. I like to to think of the word in terms of shadow. So if you were to line up the Gilbert Six, okay, in the bright sunlight. And when you came out and all you could see were our shadows, right? You would have no problem identifying who was whom. Well, there's a strapping young man and there's three, four beautiful women and there's the fat, ugly, bald guy, right? I mean, you'd have no problem, okay, identifying us by our Shadows, right? Because the shadow is so similar, you can't mistake one shadow from an, uh, you can't, you can, you can distinguish one shadow from another. Yet, if you were to see both the figure and the shadow, come on, you are not going to mistake one for the other, right? They are so, while they are similar, yet they are so different. That it's obvious that one is a, is, is a, is a, is a mere mirage. Mirage is not the right word. I was going to say shadow, but you can't use the word shadow when you're defining shadow, right? You can't do that, okay? One is a, is a, a veil, a, you know, a, a thinly feel, veiled appearance of the other. And so, so it is with Jesus and Adam. So, so here is where Jesus and Adam were similar. Now, let's, this is important. Here's where Jesus and Adam were similar. Jesus and Adam were both men. Make no mistake. Jesus was not 50% God or 50% man. He was 100% man. He was 100% God, but he was nothing less than man. Both were born to represent mankind before God. Both were given a mission Both were given a mission of perfect obedience. Both were given this idea that if you obey, if you are faithful, you will bring life. And both were able to impact all of humanity through their one deed. That's how they're similar. That's how they are are shadows. But that's where the similarity ends. 
because Paul wants to highlight, I think, kind of three areas where they are radically different. And for you to get the gospel, for you to understand what it is exactly that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born into a stable and lived life for 33 years on earth, you have to understand how he was different than Adam. Now, this, these aren't the only three ways, okay? These aren't the only three ways, but they are three ways we see in the text. Okay, let me, let me go through them here. Number one, they are different in terms of the magnitude of their mandate. See, Adam, we don't know how long Adam walked in faithfulness before God, but we know that he obviously didn't keep the law perfectly far from it. Jesus, one of the things that we say when we say that he is our federal head, our representative, that when Jesus came to earth, he fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law, okay? It's not that Jesus simply didn't sin in terms of his acts of commission. He didn't lie to his mom and dad. He didn't steal gum from the Middle East bazaar or whatever. He, I mean, none of that sort of stuff. It's not that he just didn't do bad things or sin, but he fulfilled all the righteous requirements. In other words, he was circumcised just like every other male Jewish child on the eighth day. Remember, he was, he was 12 years old, and he was in the temple, and his parents were like, Jesus, where have you been? What are you doing? And Jesus knew very well where he was and what he was doing. He was attending to his father's business, but yet somehow he managed to honor God and honor his parents at the same time. He was obedient to them. Jesus lived 30 years as a carpenter, toiling in the Mideast sun. And when they say carpenter, that was probably stone masonry. He was just working with his hands. Why? Because that's what Jewish men did. By this time, we know at some point in here, Joseph died. And Jesus, undoubtedly, as the oldest, was caring for, attending his family. This was the responsibility of every child born in Israel. And then as we have seen all throughout his public ministry, Jesus walked perfectly. He offered his tithes, his offerings, his worship, even though he himself was the object of that worship. Do you see that? He was baptized. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. You and I can't even begin to to wrap our brains around what this must have been like. The Son of God, 100% man, perfectly fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law. That in itself could be a whole nother sermon. But the magnitude of their mandate, number two, the heart of their motive. Now we have to ask, I mean in, in some ways it's a rhetorical question, why did Jesus succeed where Adam failed? I mean, obviously being God had something to do with that, right? But on a, on a human level, listen to what Paul says here. Go back to verse 15. Paul says, the free gift is not like the trespass. Now that word trespass, peripatoma, literally means deviation from the path. So the idea is that 
Adam was given a path to walk by God on behalf of mankind, and he deviated from it. He went off on his own. He wanted to pursue a better way. Adam had a self-will that overrode the will of God. That's what the idea of trespass means. But it says Jesus is embodied the free gift, the word charisma. It literally means deed of grace. It means, it means deed of self-sacrifice. The idea what Paul is, is, is holding up to us is that the reason from a human perspective that Adam failed while Jesus succeeded is that Jesus wanted to do what the Father wanted him to do and Adam didn't. That, that, that Jesus set aside his own will, set aside his own agenda, set aside equality with God. What does Philippians 2.8 say? It says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus says, Not my will, Lord, but your will. And what did Adam say? Not your will, Lord, but mine. This is what Paul is drawing us to, that the heart of Adam and the heart of Jesus at this very point was ultimately one was bended and yielded to the word of God and to the person of God, and the other was not. So they were different in the heart of their motive, and then finally they were different in the success of their mission. That should be obvious by now, but look at verse 18. It says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Here, here is what, this is the sum of Paul's argument. Adam acting on your behalf failed. He plunged us all into sin and ruin and misery. And all of us, by nature and by choice, stand under his just condemnation. Hell, separation, death, that is what happened, that is what flowed down from the one central act of disobedience of Adam. However, with Jesus, because of his perfect life, because of his sacrificial death on a cross, he now brings life. He brings justification. He restores those he represents into right relationship to God. Listen to Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, now this is what this means. We say, what is, Pastor Paul, what does it mean to be justified? We, I, I get this whole thing of Adam really messed things up, but what does it mean that Jesus acting on my behalf because of what he's done, if I place my faith in him, I am justified, what does that mean? Paul tells us in Romans 5, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, now listen to this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop there. You who were once enemies of the cross. That's what, that's what this means. It's not like a peaceful, easy feeling, an inner subjectivity. Peace means the absence of conflict. The bringing together of warring parties. Jesus says, Paul says, you now have, because of Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. Let's keep reading in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access 
by faith. That word access, it denotes this idea of we who were once forbidden to go into a place, like wanting to go to a country club or wanting to go to a, uh, or get into an exclusive club or fraternity or sorority and, and not having the right handshake or having the right whatever, not being able to get access and how alienating that can feel being on the outside. Paul says, not only, not only are you, do you have peace with God, you're no longer warring, but you have access to him. You can come and visit, you can come and sit, you can come and commune, you can come and worship. We have attained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, one of the things that I hope and pray happens for you this Advent season, as you pause, as you reflect, as you gaze at this diamond of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there would be for you a street-level engagement, as Paul Tripp would say, in the person and work of Jesus. That what might be lofty or distant or high or cerebral for you might in this season be real and intimate and personal because we've been justified with God. We now have a place to stand. Whatever is happening in your life right now, if you know Jesus Christ, you have a place to stand. Your, your feet are perched on solid rock while everything around you gives way because Jesus, as your head, went before you, died for you in your place. You now have eternal, absolute assurance in him. And let me just give you an example, church, of, of what difference this makes on the street level. Many of you know Liz Cleary of this church. She's um, been a part of our church family at Killarne in Midtown for, for many years. She's taught women's Bible studies. She's poured herself out into, into women. And a couple of years ago, she had a bout uh, with breast cancer. And just this past season, there's been a reoccurrence of that cancer that's appeared in her liver. And her diagnosis from a human perspective, we would call grim. And so the elders began to gather around her on Tuesday night, prayed for her, um, visited her with her in the hospital this um, in the last day or two. And, and here is what I found amazing. You know, you know, Liz is not a stoic. She's not obtuse or aloof from what's going on. There is, there is, there is mourning. There is sadness. There is, there's the reality of what she faces in the coming days and weeks in terms of chemo treatment, and you know her, please pray for her and please lift her up. But what I found particularly amazing was the woman that was in this bed that I was sitting across from had an amazing gospel resolve. I told her, Liz, if you just prick your skin, the Bible pours out. She is just witnessing and proclaiming and trusting, and there is a, there is a, there is a joy, there is a hope, there is a confidence. Not, not, there's not an aloofness. It's not that she's in denial. But she speaks and prays and carries herself as one who has made peace with God.
who has been justified, who's been granted access, who now has a firm place to stand. And, and, and she's 60 years old. Of course she's praying for healing. We're praying for her healing. We want you to pray for healing. The Bible tells us to pray for her healing. From a human perspective, there seems to be so much of her life still in front of her with her kids and her grandkids. But yet she speaks and prays and carries herself as one who is part of the family of Christ. Who has trusted in her second Adam who has gone before her. Who has now given her peace and access and a place to stand and ultimately hope. It's a reminder for every one of us. Everyone on planet Earth this morning is a part of one of two families. And depending upon which family you're in dictates whether you are here as one condemned or who are one here who is justified. Membership in one of these families determines whether you are spiritually alive or spiritually dead. And John's thought reminds us What's at stake in Romans 5? He says this. All men are in Adam since we are in Adam by birth, but not all men are in Christ. Since we can be in Christ only by faith. In Adam by birth, we are condemned and die, but if we are in Christ, by faith we are justified and live. This morning let me ask you, which family are you a part of? See, during this season of Advent, where we celebrate the appearing of Jesus, we celebrate the fact that he came to lead us out of the family of Adam, the family of darkness, into his family, the family of light. And if you're not a part of that family, then now is the time and the place. And as pastors and elders, after the service, we'd love to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions you have after the service. If you are a part of that family, stop, pause, gaze at the brilliance of Jesus Christ this season. Let's pray.